That's right. Getting the swing of it. How you yeah. been, Brian? I've been doing all right. So we're trying to pack up because we're gonna we're gonna try to move. Oh no, kidding! Yeah, we're 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 looking at it. So it's uh, we're just kind of getting started, but you you realize how much there is still to do. Sticking around Omaha, I assume. Yeah, yeah, somewhere around here. But it's time to move on. This house, you know, we bought it a while ago. Yeah. We didn't have kids at all, so it's a little it's a little small for having two grown ass kids. <laughs> and it's a boy and a girl, so you can't just stick them in the same room or anything. Right. Brutal. So, but yeah, maybe, uh, you know, I'll find a new place with a professional podcasting studio in it. You know, I got, got some high standards. <laughs> gotta get on that HGTV game. Get, gonna move in with Chuck with his, uh, <laughs> his, his like his perfect closet. podcast studio in slick. the closet that he never uses. <laughs> and, uh, Danielle has a recording closet as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a must have for the modern home buyer for sure. Probably even office. Sound soundproof scream room. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, given that the economy has failed everybody, pretty much everybody is trying to uh, podcast, uh, get on that, get on that that Chapo <laughs> yeah. money train, you know, <laughs> yeah, that gravy train. Get on that Pod Save America money boat. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, has has Casper mattresses reached out to us yet? <laughs> so sadly no uh, we'll be, uh, you have to buy them first it's like a MLM now you have to like you have to buy in oh yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> oh. god there was a time when every every mid-level podcaster in America had the best best beds <laughs> they all had whips to brush their teeth with they're all getting their That's right, just snack boxes coming by the barrel full. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Faith in Bagora. It's your newest episode. <laughs> Of the Liquid Flannel Podcast from Arlington, Texas. I am Matthew Flanagan. My my name is not actually Flanagan. It's Hodges, but my mother's maiden name is Flanagan. So I'm I'm claiming. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna abandon this right now. I'm Matthew Hodges out of Arlington, Texas. Joined uh, as always by my co-host in Omaha, Nebraska, Brendan Williams. Brendan. You're kind of Irish, aren't you? Oh, I'm totally Irish. My uh, mother's maiden name is is Murphy. I'm super psyched for the Brexit to to bring back, you know, civil war. Yeah, really going retro, old school there. Right. So it's going to be exciting times this uh, St. Patrick's Day. You know, it's going to be the last <laughs> one for a while. So we better do it upright. And we have an unexpected Irishman uh, also joining us on this program our old friend max barber from minneapolis max you're uh interestingly irish yeah well, i was born irish uh, i was adopted by a jewish family but my name at birth was baby boy monahan <laughs> which sounds like a sounds like a gangster or a oh hell yeah, yeah dude. Boxer, i was totally yeah, thinking boxer 
Yeah. <laughs> when I found out that was when I found out that was my name at at birth, I was like, <laughs> that's such a good name. Like I'm Robbed. I'm fine with Max Barber. I think it's a good name, but Baby Boy Monahan is just awesome. That's two two yeah, good it, names. You you you're hogging it, all the good names, man. <laughs> that's just not fair. I mean, it sucks when you're when you're a kid, I guess. But once you get older, you know, it's like. It's like being called Tiny or like Little John or something like that, you know. Pony boy. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't want to be a kid and be called Baby right. Boy. No, but uh, as as an adult, it's a pretty great one. <laughs> well, Max, we're delighted to have you back on the show with us. Uh, I think as we go into our our first segment, there is going to be some some stuff that intersects with uh, with the Jewish identity. But I I think to start off with. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, my boy, uh, favorite politician uh, in the world, uh, absolute empty shirt, skateboarding man, Beto O'Rourke has finally entered the uh, 2020 presidential primary. Um, and I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> you could tell. You, you can feel the excitement yeah, the, in the air. Yeah. The excitement is palpable. <laughs> Yeah, he's a. Uh, it, it's been really interesting to watch a guy who explicitly, like him, he himself stating, "I don't actually identify with any particular political, uh, like field, political uh, ideology. Um, I just feel like I need to be in it." Um, which it, I, I think that's the uh, that's the energy that the Democrats really need to fucking sweep 2020. He said he feels like he was born to be in it. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty bold statement. You feel like you're being born to be president. Good grief. Literally. I mean, I'm a white dude and I'm not that. Literally entitled. the opposite of what everyone has always talked about. The the mythology of the American presidency. Right. That like uh, like George Washington said, you know, I don't think that I should occupy this office, but I'll do it because I'm called to the duty of it. And that's how the president yeah. should always be like somebody who doesn't want to be president. But the duty calls them, whereas Beto. He's going the other direction. Yeah. Bold new spin. Yeah. What was that quote where he came out and he was like, oh, people say I'm too liberal for Texas, but I'm too conservative for everywhere else. But I don't really know what I am. I just want to. I just love America. And it's like, what? Right. what is this message? It's, it's very, yeah. very perplexing. Too, too liberal for Texas, too conservative for everyone else. Uh, sounds like you shouldn't run for fucking president. <laughs> Or that's just what they want you to think. <laughs> I mean, I think I think he mistook our excitement at the idea that he might be able to beat Cruz for our excitement for anything else regarding him. Like his presentation is bizarre. He talks like if you ever watch those YouTube videos where people are trying to pretend excitement and so they speak with their hands and just too forcefully. Right. He his public demeanor is like that it feels very artificial and very f f falsely amped yeah. up and it, i honestly find it a little distracting and upsetting and i've, I've said the same thing uh, on the show before that uh it, I, I think the guy does actually have some uh decent values in terms of social justice you know there's the the viral video of him speaking to the black church about black lives matter right. and stuff like that but 
also he comes from uh san antonio uh which is a a super safe you know like liberal progressive district and he still always tends to vote kind of along centrist or sometimes like right-leaning uh you know like blue dog democrat or or very safe uh republican grounds um when he doesn't need to which you gotta listen to the guy if he tells you who he is by his votes he's not he's not a progressive so when he says like I don't want someone to call me a progressive because I I don't care to, you know, uh, be, you know, pigeonholed like that. It's like, well, no, it's because you're actually not a progressive. Yeah, we're not we're not going to make that mistake. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So that's that's been really interesting uh, watching this dude who doesn't seem to stand for anything entering a field where you've got a bunch of people who really do stand for a whole bunch of stuff that he won't commit to. Uh, and go ahead. It's almost like he, you're saying like, oh, he could have voted like more left leaning and it wouldn't have hurt him in his reelection chances in a safe blue district in the house. But he was looking at that long game, right? Saying, well, but if I want to run for president someday, I don't want to like be right. tied down to all these leftist positions. Why don't I just vote, you know, middle of the road so that I can just appeal to all these conservatives? But is that going to happen? Like I just so it's such an old school mentality that you're thinking, "Oh, well, if I'm conservative enough, I'll get all these conservatives to vote for me and I'll win in a landslide but this dude couldn't even beat Ted Cruz who even conservatives right. well, and, yeah and that's that's absolutely the same uh like Chuck Schumer narrative of you know for every for every democrat we lose uh like in big cities we're going to pick up you know two two republican voters in the uh like republican suburb, suburbs or whatever uh, but the the thing that absolutely blows my mind is that did you guys know the whole reason that he's called Beto is because his dad thought that he was going to run for office one day and was like we're going to be in Texas and if he has like an ethnic sounding name he'll be more electable than if he were Robert Francis and that's why they started calling him Beto like it started before he was even born was his dad was like Beto is going to be more electable. It's genius, genius. I'll tell you, it, it, it tells you, it tells you how far we've the, the Irish have been <laughs> absorbed into uh, into whiteness that uh, Bobby O'Rourke doesn't sound like an ethnic name, <laughs> right? Yeah, that they had to call him Beto. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that goes back to that. This is a really interesting thing to bring up with you, Max. That uh, I, I think. All three of us have a pretty good sense of um, how the Irish weren't considered white when they first came over in this country. Uh, But because they didn't want the Irish to have any kind of class solidarity with, say, the Negro at the time, you know, Irish people got inducted into whiteness. um, And and that's how you end up with uh, like. Every police officer in Boston uh, is Irish or Irish descended. You know, we became white 
when we came yep. not when we came over to the country but when you know the the labor movement started to actually kind of threaten uh capitalism it's like well we need to induct the irish now yeah i think it was partial induction and partially the irish sort of pushing their way in and you don't just become white you buy your way into whiteness through pushing down people who are not white like it's not a passive sure. process that sort of gets written out of our history, but it's no accident that uh, the Irish were a huge part of police departments in some very notoriously racist places like Boston and New York and um, and Baltimore. You know, that, that nightstick twirling thing, that's an entirely Irish-American invention from Baltimore that's very specific to to the Irish, com- the Irish police community there. Well, that's an extremely aggressive act. <laughs> <laughs> that whole point is just walk down the street and show that you're lethal. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, we didn't we didn't just get sucked into to whiteness uh, because people were concerned that the Irish were going to be uh, be on the side of of labor. We we really said okay, we're going to become Irish and demonstrate our Irishness. We're going to be a lot more racist than a lot of other people. We're going to be more visibly racist, and we're going to. I mean, obviously, this wasn't. Uh, every Irish person, but uh, a significant enough percentage that uh, that we now are just considered to be part of. Like, I, you know, I get people on Twitter who don't apparently don't realize that I'm Irish American who pop in the white nationalists who are like, you're Jewish, you're not white. And it's like they never they never pop in. And they say you're you're Irish, you're not yeah. white. Like that's that's never a that's no longer a contested space. Yeah, not not the way that everybody can be racist against uh, the Italians, for instance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which which is still you hilarious. Um, yeah, I, actually, I, I would um, be in favor of people being racist against the Irish. <laughs> yeah, bring it back. Bring back those. Uh, what's his name? Thomas Nast illustrations where we just look like. Oh apes. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, giant hairy arms. The the sad part is I do have like giant hairy forearms. <laughs> No, I sometimes look at those cartoons. I'm like, eh, it's not that far <laughs> right? from how I look. Like, I got that yeah, nice. we, We've all got that that sloping brow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think with with Brexit, uh, you know, the Irish racism is is about to come back into vogue in a in a in a big way. It's it's going to be a crazy time out there. Yeah, clearly, yeah. Jesus. Do we do we even want to get into Brexit? Oh, absolutely I mean, that, that is not. So far outside of our wheelhouse. No, just know that it's not. <laughs> it's not great, and the, if not great, most of all for the Irish. Well, uh, it, it, bringing it closer to home, uh, and before we started recording, I was telling Max that I didn't want to try to like pigeonhole him, but uh, I, I think that he probably does have some good perspectives on some things that we have been saying uh, around the like Ilhan Omar, uh, Israel, uh, anti-Semitism debate. And I'd like to pick your brain for at least a couple of minutes, Max. Um, Do do you feel like uh, you're you are uh, by ethnic heritage Irish, uh, but by cultural heritage Jewish? Um, yep. how have, how has this debate been, uh, like bouncing off of, you know, your, your different identities? I mean, for me, it's, let me say it this way. A lot of Jews who were ethnically Jewish 
have a really complicated relationship with whiteness. Because on one hand, they have a great deal... Uh, light-skinned Jews have a great deal of white skin privilege, um, undeniably. And Jews did the same thing the Irish did. They bought into whiteness institutionally, uh, starting in about... After, after World War II, once once everybody was sort of in shock at the Holocaust and uh, the it, Jews were in a position to really petition their way in, um, we did so in part by helping support institutions of, uh, of white supremacy. I think, I think without realizing, I, I don't think it was as nakedly racist as it was for, uh, for the Irish, but it, it was still there. Um, on the other hand, you know, we get reminded by white nationalists all the time that we're not white. For me, it's that bounces off me because they obviously don't realize just how pale <laughs> right. I am. But, uh, it's a very painful discussion for Jews. Um, it, it's painful on one end to feel excluded from 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 whiteness um, in a way that feels racist. And on the other hand, to know that we have that degree of privilege and to find the language for it. Because on one hand, you feel like you're getting it from the right who hates you for not being white. And on the other hand, you feel like you're getting it from the left who hates you for being white. Hmm. Um it's a really, it's a difficult discussion, and uh, it's one that's really hard to find nuance in, um, because anti-Semitism is so ancient, and it's so, a lot of non-Jews are oblivious to it. They don't realize what the language of anti-Semitism is, and they don't realize how thoroughly anti-Semitism has woven itself into the fabric of how we talk about things, so that it's very easy when discussing something uh, like Israel, to accidentally butt up against anti, like these ancient murderous stereotypes, which I think is what, and I don't think Ilhan Omar hit them very hard. I think she just kind of brushed an elbow. But the, but that that's um, that is the the reason that she was accused of being anti-Semitic, right? She brought up she yeah, brought yeah. up the idea of money and political influence, which are I mean yeah. th- those go back to. Uh, you know, ancient ideas about like blood libel and things like that. Um, That's exactly right. Um, yeah, she the sense that Jews are sort of a sinister force working in the background and have that there's something about their money that's very questionable. And then she also have suggested dual loyalties, um, which is also an, sort of an ancient uh, stereotype about Jews. In all cases, she was talking about APAC. APAC is actually largely non-Jewish. It's a, uh, evangelical, this bizarre collusion between uh, American evangelicals who are deep in their core anti-Semitic and the state of Israel who will partner with anybody. For, yeah, for sure. It's, it's that uh, uh, premillennial dispensationalism, the idea that yeah, the idea exactly. that if if the Jews completely retake Israel, they'll rebuild the, the temple, which will usher in the, the rapture. And um, and yeah. actually Which, end by up the way, with is, a, a genocide of all of the Jews who haven't converted to that yeah, point, right? It, it doesn't work out well for the Jews. Yeah. So these are not uh, these are not people who think that uh, that their that their narrative that their Israel narrative is a good one for the Jews. They just find Jews to be useful puppets for this bizarre end of time fantasy that they have, um, and they are a, a huge part of who supports APAC. And I said on Twitter. There really is dual loyalty. It's on their part. 
they are loyal to this fantasy of Christianity in a way that they'll never be loyal to the United States or to Israel. That's their primary, like they're not loyal to the American myths of democracy and egalitarianism and all these things that we think this country is built on. They're they're loyal to their brand of Christianity, almost to exclusion. Um, and if, if, if uh, Omar had been very clear that she's talking about lobbyists and she's talking about evangelicals, I don't think anybody would have had a complaint, but she didn't phrase it very clearly. I think in some ways it's because she's a junior, a junior uh, congressperson. She's brand new at this. Um, I think some of it is that she is stepping a little bit out of her, her wheelhouse. I, I, it's fair for her to discuss Israel, but she wasn't elected. She's my congresswoman. Like Israel wasn't a big part of her plan. Sure. Um, so <laughs> I'd love it if she'd focus on Minnesota a little bit because we actually have some issues here that have nothing to do with a country in the Middle East. Well, and certainly um, it doesn't help that uh, a, a big part of her electorate is – uh, like Ethiopian refugees, uh, that she wears the hijab uh, and is obviously, you know, oh. is is outwardly very Muslim and a woman of color, uh, which makes her Absolutely. which makes her a, a very obvious target for people who in bad faith are going to say she's being anti-Semitic simply because she's a Muslim. And even people who are in good faith. I mean, my primary response to this has not been to Omar, who I think misstepped, but didn't misstep especially badly. Like, she didn't misstep any more than everyone else on the left and every other congressperson. But the reaction to her was so hugely outsized. Yeah. And that is that was because Jewish anger is very easily weaponized by the right and because it's very easy to target blacks and uh, Muslims who are presumed to be more anti-Semitic than the larger part of the population without evidence. And because there is an anti-blackness and an Islamophobia in Judaism that's not addressed. And all these things came to the forefront, which, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of Jews of color online. And I have a nephew who's a Jew of color, um, although he's really young so he's mostly oblivious to all of this but i know for god my bless him <laughs> yeah thank thank goodness um for them this was an enormously painful experience because the moment I, I could see i mean they were I, they were pretty open about expressing it just tensing up and as soon as it started saying okay let's let's back up a bit let's please pump the brakes on it and then when nobody was they were like boy we don't get listened to at all about this and so i went from you know, the thing about Israel and Omar and anti-Semitism is that Jews in America right now are really ragged. We're a raw nerve. You know, we're two months after the largest massacre of Jews in American sure. history. That's still very fresh. And it hasn't been addressed in any formal way. Like the American Jewish community hasn't gone through any kind of uh, uh, crisis treatment for this. So we're all just sort of attempting to deal with that on our own. Um, for me, my initial reaction was, you know, just God damn it. Once again, the left is not taking anti-Semitism as seriously as it should yeah. be. And that's a pretty raw nerve for me because I'm in the left. On the other hand, I also quickly noticed that the reactions to Omar were so oversized that 
my initial frustration at her was almost immediately replaced by fury at the right taking you know my valid pain and trying to use it to um to create that you know right now they're trying to build on it to to do some something that they rather ridiculously call uh jexodus the jewish oh yeah that's a that's ben shapiro's new project where uh yeah it's a you know and you've got ben shapiro who in the past has said like okay maybe uh maybe ann coulter is an anti-Semite, but she's 100% in favor of the state of Israel. So we're going to give her a pass. So it's not, it, it's not coming from a place of good faith with him. No, it's not. Um, it, it's an astroturfing turfing technique. And uh, it's obviously like, I don't think the Jews were really involved with it because the Exodus was already Jewish. Like, you <laughs> right. don't have to put Jacks on front of it. It's very. <laughs> yeah, there, there's actually very a weird super marketing old book decision about a bunch of Jews leaving a place. <laughs> exactly. You can just call it Exodus, and it's already it already has a Jewish implication. Um, so yeah, I'm furious about that, and then I'm also just extremely disappointed with the Jewish community for having let this rile them up to the extent that they were ignoring how much it could be used against, honestly, I think a politician who we desperately need. Um, I voted for Omar almost across the board. I like her positions. I think she's, you know, she's part of this new group in there that's got a more radical critique of the world, including a very clear critique that's probably born of experience of imperialism and colonialism. And that doesn't exist at all in Congress right now, except for with her and with a few others. And so I don't want to see the fact that she's not extremely nuanced in discussing Israel specifically. Like the, the only complaints about her have been regarding her discussion of Israel. She's never communicated about the larger community of Jews in any way that anybody considers questionable. And so the trouble is, you know, and this is something that Jews don't like to talk about, but the right and right-wing Jews have weaponized discussions of anti-Semitism in order to suppress valid criticisms yeah. of Israel. And God knows the left hasn't hasn't helped with that because the left keeps using anti-Semitic language to discuss Israel. And because it's so, the discussion of anti-Semitism is so abused by the right, they even refuse to listen to it when those criticisms are coming from the well, right. Well, I, um, I, I think as we work toward a break then, Max, my question for you is, um, we know that people on the right um, and probably people in the center, the uh, like very military minded uh, like Warhawk Center uh, are coming yeah. at this from a position that you and I and Brendan can't agree with. But we are, I think, on the same side when it comes to approaching these issues, uh, you know, world politics uh, from a leftist perspective. What would you like to see the left do? What do you think? we could be correcting uh, praxis wise to make sure that uh, make, make sure that the we're, we're picking the right targets for this kind of criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think in all, many cases, the targets are completely valid. It's just being cautious not to use language that, that expands to the larger Jewish community. Now, um, does, does that, does that get... include, because I did see a tweet uh, from gosh, who was it? It was uh, ah, it was one of the the primary 
Who are the gals who are running in the primary? The one with the, the weirder name. Oh, I don't know. It's not Tulsi Gabbard. Klobuchar or something? Uh, not not Klobuchar. Let's Man, let's run no, down let's run down the list. Well yeah, it, run down the, it, it wasn't Liz Warren. Cavalier. Yeah, the other one who has has no chance. Anyway, it, it released a released a statement that was like we should be able to criticize Israel, but we should uh, avoid anti-Semitic tropes like money and influence. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, no way to discuss APAC without discussing money and right. influence. The important thing is to make sure that you are clear that you're discussing APAC rather than and that you're discussing APAC fairly. I mean, the thing is that APAC is just another lobbying con- firm for another foreign country. There are a lot of sure. them. And they all try to wield influence using money because that's how government works. Um, it's fair to criticize them, but it's not fair to criticize them as being <laughs> right. unique. And when the discussion of money and influence regarding any Jewish t- subject becomes about the uniqueness of it, that's when it starts t- touching on these things. Um, and really, all that I ask, and I think it's the case with most of the Jews on the left, is that non-Jews, when they want to criticize Israel, familiarize themselves with anti-Semitism. Um, because there's just a blanket dismissal that happens right now that says uh, Jews are so hair-trigger to to try and silence valid criticism by shouting anti-Semitism that a lot of lefties won't listen to that discussion at all, even when it's from people who, for the most part, agree with them. Um, it, it, and there's a refusal to self-educate. And I, th- the thing that's important to realize is that anti-Semitism is quite a bit different than other forms of oppression in that it is a conspiracy theory. It is based on the idea that Jews are, a cons- are engaged in a conspiracy of manipulation and control. And so engaging in anti-Semitism feels like fighting oppression if you believe that Jews have this undue power. Ah. It's why it's so appealing to people. So, um, so you're, and that's you're, why it's you're saying so, that, that people on the left, by, uh, by basically buying into the conspiracy theory that Jews are a, a, a block uh, unto themselves, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're buying the same right-wing conspiracy theory when they're trying to make a, a criticism of Israel and they do it uh, ham-fistedly. And play into anti-Semitic yeah. tropes, and they get called out for that. Um, that that that's playing into the whole conspiracy theory that Jews are uh, this esoteric group that are pulling strings. Yeah, and I think it's also important to realize how much anti-Semitism is embedded into just the language that we use because it is so. It has been a so essential to. Uh, Christian culture in the West for 2,000 years, that it's often hidden there unless you're Jewish. People will say, like, why can't I discuss money and APAC when I can discuss money and NRA? It's like, well, you can, but you have to understand that language works differently for different groups. And so you can say something about the NRA that's not going to be anti-Semitic because the NRA aren't Jews. But if you say the same thing about... (laughs) APAC, and you're not careful about it, and you don't understand anti-Semitism, 
that same language, because it has a specific meaning when it's applied to Jews, can suddenly become anti-Semitic. And that's the importance of self-education, to understand what those those motifs are, these, these tropes that we talk about. Um, but honestly, I also think, I think right now, people are giving a lot less leeway towards making those mistakes because Jews feel like they are being pressed on by both sides so hard where we're actively getting murdered by the right. I I, I said on Twitter the other day that I'm not worried about the left killing me. I'm worried about the right killing me and the left letting me. And that is consistent with the history of Jews in both right-wing countries and left-wing countries where we've tended not to have allyship from either side. And so because that pain is so palpable right now, statements that ordinarily we would have said, well, that could have been phrased better. Nowadays, we're like, God damn it, what's going on? Why Why is everybody like this? So I, we also ask for a little bit of sympathy, sympathy for just how f- fucking terrible yeah, it is right now. It's a now. Co- crazy situation where it's like the the far right sees their opportunity to ally with the far left and you know use this issue as a wedge to say, oh, you guys don't like, you know, you guys don't like the Israel lobby? Like, we don't either. Like, let's let's team up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, on, a, it's on the this. red it's brown alliance. We've issue. talked about yeah. it a bunch. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like being a ping pong between two horrible people. Um, it's no fun. <laughs> and, you know, people don't realize how few of us there. I didn't even realize how few of us there were. I, I looked it up a little while ago, and there's less Jews in America than there are Native Americans. And we sort of think that Native Americans are a vanished people. No, there's actually a, a significant more larger population of Natives than there are Jews in wow. America. So we're just this tiny little group. Um, I don't, you know, I think that is one of the ways anti-Semitism works is by vastly increasing Jewish visibility. And so it seems like there's more Jews and we have more control than we actually do because we are put into visible positions. I think Trump, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't want to credit Trump with intelligence, but I think that he, he kind of just, just instinctually does the terrible things that people, that terrible people do. And one of the things he instinctually does is make Jews a very, visible sort of visible representations of his terribleness um, so we wind up with michael cohen's who are really at the forefront of all this well there's you know i, I don't know where he's finding all these jews but no it's <laughs> but it's, it's very strange right because uh i mean he's he's made a big deal about how he's actually a huge friend of jews because jared kushner married his daughter you know oh, his his Lord. daughter who he wants to bang um, you know, converted to Judaism, um, specifically yeah. because she married Jared Kushner. I, I guess my question is, uh, have have you ever considered just leaning into it and actually trying to take over? <laughs> you know, there is a thing that white supremacists think, which is, and this is why they'll show up and tell me I'm not white. They think that Jews are pretending to be white so that we can secretly get into whiteness and then Destroy yeah, it from in, infiltration techniques. Absolutely, yeah. I'm in. I'm in on it. I'm actually, I'm actually 100 in favor of that. <laughs> like I, I, 
One of the rabbis I follow online was like, why do they keep telling me I'm not white? And I was like, it's because they, they think we're trying to destroy whiteness. And I said, if only, <laughs> like, if only we had the power. Well, I mean, uh, like the, the biggest advocate of entryism ever, uh, Leon Trotsky, was himself a Jew. So uh, <laughs> I can see where this is coming from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, whiteness needs to go it's 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 just it's just a mark of privilege that's built on subjugating people who are not white and particularly black people and natives and so if i could believe me if i could cast off this horrible whiteness i would it's part of the reason why i love identifying as being irish american because it's an alternative it's something that that i was that my people were before we were white um, it's not necessarily ideal, but it is something that we can look at and say, oh, there were alternatives. And it was an alternative that we abandoned. Yeah. You know, Irishness has become such a, you know, green hats and green beer on one day out right. of the Kiss year. Right. Kiss me on my oh, Irish t-shirts. a lot more yeah. to it. Exactly. And I, I think it's valuable to, to revisit that instead of, you know, this bland mass of nothingness. Um, you know, when people are like, it's okay to be white or I'm proud to be light, white, it's like, but what does that mean? What are you? That all that means is I'm not, I'm not black or I'm not a person yeah. of color. It does, it's it's not a group. It's not an. Ethnicity. I mean, what it, what it kind of calls for is an abandonment of uh, like white racialism, um, and yeah. and a recognition of more of a, a class consciousness. Right. That I, I mean, like the Irish when they first came over here, the Jews especially when they first came over here, but, you know, continue on to this day, have a lot more in common than they have separate uh, based on oh, based absolutely. on their flavor of whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. We were both groups that were excluded from whiteness and uh, uh, came over and, and were really considered to be a, a sort of a unwanted minority group and pushed our way into whiteness and also were brought into it as sort of a sort of a tool for bolstering up. Well, sure. A a weapon against black people, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So, yeah, if we can if we can try and dismantle that, I'm all in favor of it. Uh, But um, the least we can do is try and figure out what it means to be something more than a white. Um, What what were we and what can we be that's not just a mark of we're not black? Well, I think that's an amazing place to leave off that discussion. Um, We're going to take a break and Uh, When we come back, Max has a story that uh, is going to speak to, you know, an aspect of uh, white heritage, Um, I I think. Right. We're going to talk about, you know, being being Irish uh, as as part of the experience of, um, you know, being in this country. So, yeah, let's take a let's take a break there and we'll come back. A large crowd had gathered outside of Kilmainham with heads all uncovered. They knelt on the ground. Far behind that grim prison lay a brave His life for his country About to lay down He went to his death 
Like a true son of Ireland The firing party He bravely did face Then the order rang out Present arms and fire James Connolly Already made grave. The black flag was hoisted. Their cruel deed was over. Gone was the man who loved Ireland so well. There was many sad heart in Dublin that morning when they murdered James Connolly the Irish rebel Max we talked a bit about the way different ethnicities collide and I, I wonder do you have anything to say about the Lucky Charms situation <laughs> where you've got like an Irishman who also everyone's trying to get his gold? <laughs> I kind of am fascinated by Lucky Charms. I did an essay about it a couple of years ago, but I can't remember much of what I found out about it. He's definitely one of the most, like if you ever watch Irish YouTube, it's he's one of the things that perplexes actual Irish people most about, <laughs> sure. about Americans. Like they wa- they look at him and they're like, uh, I don't think we look like that. <laughs> well, but do leprechauns look like that? I'm, I'm not <laughs> even sure that's the case. I mean, there are a bunch of different leprechauns. Uh, there's one that like will ride pigs around in your lawn, completely drunk. We don't we don't get the full leprechaun tail here in the U.S. That's just a normal Irish person. <laughs> <laughs> there goes your entire Irish audience. No, no, oh no. <laughs> We've done it again. Uh, since it is uh, coming up on, and, and in fact, I think we'll try to get this episode out on St. Patrick's Day. Ah, amazing. Yeah. We we have invited Max on once again to share one of his stories, which I, I believe this is a like an Irish-themed horror story. Is that not right? Um, sort of. Uh, there is horror in it. Um, I just got... Uh, this today. It's I'm holding in my hand a book called Sadie the Goat by Max Sparber. Uh, it's self-published, but it's available on Amazon.com. And it's something I originally wrote in Omaha quite a while ago. It's a collection of uh, poems that combine into one larger story. Sadie the Goat was a character in the book Gangs of New York, which is purportedly true stories of uh, of of New York's Irish gangs, primarily huh. Irish gangs, in the 1860s to 1890s. Uh, was that related to the movie much? Yeah, the movie borrows heavily from the book, but fictionalizes it a great deal, which is bizarre because the book itself is incredibly fictionalized. Uh, the book is basically yeah. a series of, of folk tales and tall tales. Um, so Sadie the Goat appears in there for a paragraph. Um, the author, Herbert Ashbury, talks about a woman who was a gangster or kind of a, a thief in New York at that time period uh, in the Fourth Ward, which is the same place the movie Gangs of New York takes place in. 
Um, she was called Sadie the Goat because she would literally run over at people, smack them in the chest with her head, and while they were incapacitated, she and her friends would rob them. Um, but in her story... <laughs> That's a pretty good robbing technique. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that one. You don't see that much no, anymore, don't. but that is a tried and true method. In her story, she uh, winds up losing her ear in a bar fight. A woman named Gallus Mag bites it off. And uh, she's so humiliated, she leaves the fourth ward and then gets kind of one of the wilder ideas from the era in her head. She decides to steal a ship and go up and down the Hudson and Harlem Rivers kidnapping farmers and threatening to make them walk the plank if they don't give them, give her money. So she becomes a river pirate. And so I, re- I took that one paragraph and I expanded into uh, an entire... It, read out loud, it takes about 45 minutes to get through the whole thing. Um, and it's written in sort of the doggerel and uh, folk-style lyrics of the era. Hmm. Um, and I'm going to read several of them, including one of them, which is legitimately a ghost story. Yeah, so... Uh, I'll just get to it. I can't wait. All right. The first one is uh, an introduction to our character. It's called In the Old Fourth Ward. My name's Sadie Farrell, and I'm just now 16. I was born in the Fourth Ward to Molly O'Brien. I was born in a crimp house above Cherry Street. Me pa was a sailor, and we ain't never meet. It's a city Manhattan. It's the Lower East Side, a tenement on one end, a river beside... Here's Sweeney's shambles where people pile like cords. You live and you die fast in the old fourth ward. What use is for children but to sell or be sold? Most die of jail fever before one year old. Some make it like I did, by tooth and by nail. Some work as a roller, some work as a tail. Every third word is Irish, every accent a brogue. Each song is of Ireland from each degenerate rogue. They sing and they weep some. The whiskey pours, 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 poured. None expected to be here in the old fourth ward. The Rosers don't come here unless armed and six strong, so it's all pandemonium. Rantum, scantum, lifelong. We does what we wants to, and we're done unto two. You're known by your woundings and the scars they give you. There's lads in the street now, top hats and long tails. Lads under the docks telling stories of jail. They plot, they will blag some. Like me, each is scarred. I want to plot with them in the old fourth ward. All right. This next poem is uh, sort of a summary of the various gangs in New York at that time period. It's called A Broken Alphabet of Gangs. And these are all actual gangs from the time period, and the descriptions of them are apparently historically accurate. B is for the Batavia Street Gang, what robbed Siegel's jewelry store to steal clothes for the Sullivan Ball. They took pride in all what they wore. And B is for the Baxter Street Dudes, the gang that run the Baxter Street Bar. But they also did plays and variety shows and ran the Grand Duke Theatre. C is for Corcoran's Roosters, who are also known as Rag Gang. They lived up in shanties on Dutch Hill and told the cops to go hang. D is for the Daybreak Boys. You had to kill a man just to be one. Eventually the cops went after them armed, saying, Killin' one, if and you see one. And D is for the Dutch Mob, of course. Each one was a pickpocket crook. They often liked to start fighting in streets and rob those who stopped for a look. And E is for the Eastman Gang. Almost all Jews to the gent. Most worked as pimps on Rivington Street, riding bicycles wherever they went. H is for the notorious Hook Gang, who operated down by the wharf. 
They like to hijack men's rowing in boats and make them row back and forth. M is for the molasses gang, who wandered from ward to ward. Sometimes they'd start robbing a man, but then wander away from him, bored. N is for the 19th gang, who were vicious right down to the bone, unless you were Catholic and could recite psalms. Then they'd bless you and leave you alone. S is for the slaughterhouse gang, who organized bare-knuckle brawls, but don't let them follow you into a bar or they'll knife you through to the wall. T is for the tub of blood bunch, led by a man named Baru. He fell asleep once outside a bar, and the rats, they ate him straight through. W is for the famous Wyos, an especially enterprising mob. $7 will pay for nose and jaw broke, but 100 buys the big job. But P is for the municipal police, and T is for Tammany Hall. There's a lot of gangs in New Amsterdam, but they're the biggest gang of them all. This next tale is from when Sadie has managed to acquire a boat, but she has no idea how to sail it. And it's called Throw Him Overboard. There was Pike, who was a sailor, and we bound him up in cord and took him from his bed, and we carried him then toward our ship that was in the river, just outside the old fourth ward. We didn't know how to sail it, so it stayed there, that way, moored. We then demanded that he teach us, but our demands Old Pike ignored. But this is a city full of sailors, so we threw him overboard. Orvand was a sea dog, Norway his native land. He'd been a sailor since a boy, he was a rugged sailing hand. We caught him with a bobtail, just exactly as we planned, and carried him then to the sloop to make our one demand. But he spoke Norwegian, which we couldn't understand, so we tied his hands with rope. Overboard then went Orvand. Mickey swabbed the deck, so we tossed him in the sea. Palmer was a galley cook, so he followed in Mickey. Hugo worked a dreadship, a quick drop was his reward. And Tim, Liam, and Danny, all of them went overboard. If the Hudson, it has risen, now an inch or two inch high. It's filled up now with sailors who are sloop they drop and buy. One might know how to furl the sails that would keep him briefly dry. If he didn't know the gunter line, the time would come to say goodbye. It takes a lot to learn a sailor. It's an education. Aye. But throw enough sailors overboard, you'll learn it by and by. And finally, a tale from when she's on the ship and things have gone very bad. This is called Sailing Dead. Uh, things have been going so well so far. <laughs> they get progressively worse. <laughs> Topsy boy is as hard as they get, and he don't usually cry, but he's weeping like a bantling, and he will not say why. The other boys are talking, joking Mike, he talks the most. He says they've seen an awful thing. He says they've seen a ghost. And it's heave away, heave away, heave away me ragged dogs, with a tale of a sailing dead and a pint of navy grog. Bunko Jim says look at the mast, and I'll look up just then, and a cloth that blows from the mizzen sail and it ain't there again. Gaffing Tom says late at night there are whispers from below, and if you listen close, they curse and say, to the briny lads you'll go. And it's heave away, heave away, heave away my ragged dogs with a tale of the sailing dead and a pint of navy grog. Some say leave the ships, mate. Some say burn it down. Some say we're wrong to sail it. Some think we all will drown. Some say we are not pirates, but townies away from town. But what I say is what matters, and I say batten down. 
There are tales of a massacre that befell an early crew, and they say the dead are restless still, and the boys swear all is true. I say them ghosts are welcome here underneath the pirate jack, and all my life I've seen plenty dead, and not a single one come back. And there we go. Me brothers. That's a very a very special St. Patrick's Day treat from from our from our friend Max Barber and from a show that's uh, a bunch of descendants of good old Irish boys. Yep. Here's to Sadie the Goat. Slanche. <laughs> <laughs> let's take a little break there, hey, and uh, let's see if we can if we can find a a little bit lighter note, a little bit higher note to take the show out on. Bloody Fourth War. What do you say is for children but to sell or be sold? Most die of jail fever before one year old. Some make it like I did by tooth and by nail. Some work out. Every third word is Irish, every accent a brogue. Each song is of Ireland, each degenerate rogue. Sing and they weep, some the whiskey pours, 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 pours. None expected to be bloody fourth war well max first of all that was fantastic man thank you so much thank you he is such a storyteller that is not easy to do so i i appreciate it amazing work as always thank you speaking of amazing world building and storytelling (laughs) my high note this week is the lucky charms universe is dungeons and dragons baby oh shit it is back and better than ever so Two Dungeons and Dragons related uplifting stories. So the Critical Role podcast and also live stream every Thursday, they play a D&D game and it's just amazing. They're all professional like voice actors. And hmm. so their character work is just absolutely incredible. Oh, yeah. You turned me on to this the last time I was up in Omaha and my 12 hour drive back. I ended up listening to just Critical Role. Because they're so entertaining, the amazing characterization uh, that you really don't get with any other anything having to do with tabletop gaming. Right. I mean, it is it is, you know, it's all improv, which is the amazing part about it. So it's like this amazing form of professionally voice acted improv storytelling. It's incredible. So they uh, recently launched a Kickstarter to do like an animated special 
and they asked for $750,000, and as of right now, they've raised $7.2 million. Holy <laughs> shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is spectacular. Yeah, amazing, and just totally mind-blowing. So I'm super excited for that. It's, like, one of the highest-funded Kickstarters, like, of all time now. If this turns into, like, an animated series or something, like, that would be freaking amazing, because it's really great stuff and something that you would think already exists because Dungeons and Dragons has been around for so long, but it really doesn't. Well, and also like tabletop gaming has become cool at this point that like it's, it's no longer like satanic panic right. uh, or like nerd stuff. Yeah. I mean, yet a uh, stranger things. Yeah. 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 That was a big thing too. Make makes it look cool. Yeah. So, and I'm also running game this weekend. Uh, so we're gonna have a full crew for our St. Patrick's Day special D and D, where they're gonna be fighting green slimes, and I'm gonna be making Jello shots for all the <laughs> green slimes that they're gonna fight. But you're not gonna be live streaming this on the uh, the uh, Liquid yeah, Funnel. I don't page. know. Maybe I'll have. To- <laughs> periscope that shit buddy (laughs) maybe we'll have to set it up uh so yeah look forward to that uh that's gonna be a fun time so that's definitely uh been brightening my days recently yeah how about you guys nice yeah so uh my high note is uh much more like material and and direct but i think that here in north texas we're finally out of the like freezing zone Mm. so i went to the garden store today and i bought a couple of tomato plants, a few pepper plants, a whole bunch of herbs, some cucumbers. Uh, and I think that, like last year, I'm going to spend my birthday, which is next week, planting my garden, uh, building some garden beds and getting some veggies in the ground. I, I know that that's an unfair thing to say to people who are in <laughs> Omaha or Minneapolis, because uh, you guys don't get to plant for another three months or something yeah Yeah. it seems like that (laughs) (laughs) i'm really looking forward to planting my garden and you know last year wasn't as successful as i wanted but i learned a lot so this year and i'm hoping that really what i want is just a blt uh tomatoes grown from my garden maybe some lettuce i just want to make a a homemade blt that's the goal hand-raised piglet uh yeah yeah totally (laughs) no well we've got We've got a lot of uh, stray cats around here. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that cat bacon. Yeah, it's a delicacy. <laughs> you can't get it anymore, but <laughs> just like grandma used to make. So that's my high note for the week. How about you, Max? Uh, mine is also food related. Hell yeah. Now, I don't know if you're... <laughs> Hopefully it's better than cat bacon. It's not cat. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with the Jewish calendar, but it's a lunar calendar. So it, like our holidays fall at different times every year. Um, They don't fall on the regular calendar. Um, Hmm. So Passover can be anywhere from a month early to a month late, even though theoretically it's supposed to fall around Easter. They stole that for Easter because, you know, that thing's moving all over the place. I can never keep track of when that thing is happening. (laughs) Why doesn't it just chase the lunar calendar? Like, it should be progressively later every year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Easter could be in, like, September. Yeah. It's not going to, like, mess anything up. We do... So, I don't know quite how they do the calendar, but it, there's, like, leap months, et cetera, to, to sort of... So, it all Keep falls it aligned. This, yeah, yeah, the same season, approximately. But uh, we have a holiday called Purim, which is to Jews what St. Patrick's Day is to Irish. It is 
a drunken revelry. You're actually yeah. It was mm. it was when the Jews chased all of the snakes out of. Um, <laughs> wait, no, sorry. <laughs> um, and uh, it doesn't usually fall this time of the year, or at least this close to uh, St. Patty's Day. But they they're very close to each other this year. Like St. Patty's oh. Day is Sunday, and Purim is like Wednesday or Thursday. There hey. is. A food nice. associated with Purim, which I love, called uh, hamantash, and it's a like a sweet treat. It's like a little triangle pastry with fruit inside it. Um, and then for St. Patty's Day, I always get a sh- one shamrock shake per year, uh, which is ter- <laughs> terrible, but I, I love it. And this is that is- the one that makes your poop turn like a weird color? Yeah. Turn green. Okay. They had a Halloween shake that was black one time. Oh, that was so weird. Yeah. Oh my god! Don't. I mean, do it was it. worth getting Don't it just to it. see your terrifying. Come out as, terrifying. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> this was actually the first year in my entire life that I've been able to get a shamrock shake and a homantashan at the same time, and so I uh, <laughs> oh like mix them together. I, d- I did. I, I, I was like, do I dare mix the streams? It was not It was not actually a good combination, but it was fun to uh, to be able to indulge like the worst of both of my ethnicities simultaneously. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. As a white American on St. Patrick's Day, you know, I'm going to be drinking Miller Lite, but just with a little bit of milk, you know, just to keep, just to keep it healthy. <laughs> yeah, you got to combine those ethnicities. <laughs> Yeah, see, I was just going to firebomb a Catholic church. Oh, yeah, you got to go, uh, you know, order those Irish car bombs or whatever before they <laughs> right. stop making yeah. them because that's actually happening and then it's tasteless. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the joke, right, that you know that it's a good Irish bar if you go in and you order an Irish car bomb and 10 minutes later you find yourself getting the shit beaten out of you in the back alley. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's a good Irish bar. Yeah, if you yeah. go in and there's an Irish bartender and ask for a, an Irish car bomb, the, uh, the responses are usually not very flattering. In fact, uh, black and tans aren't uh, the ideal mm. the ideal way to phrase it either. So there's all this alternate language that you need to learn around certain bartenders so that you don't right. you don't piss them off. Well, that kind of goes back to uh, what we were talking about before with the way that different ethnicities get kind of absorbed into whiteness, mm-hmm. uh, where these really offensive things in Irish heritage have become like jokes to the extent that nobody even knows they're a joke yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's how you ingratiate yourself to the whites, that you just go up and be like, oh, I'm so, man, I'm terrible, aren't I? Like, And they're like, yeah, this guy's <laughs> right. all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this shit that happened to my ethnicity, uh, we can just treat that as a joke. Good, that's what we wanted. We'll, we'll, make a, we'll make a drink or a party favor out of it. Now I'm white, right? Well, we did it. We solved racial injustice again. Thank goodness. Well, finally, it took some doing, but we we got there. <laughs> yeah, send us your best racial jokes. No, uh, don't do that. <laughs> no. Oh my god, you don't need to ask for that. It just it just comes anyway. Pandora's box. Yeah. Well, it's all right. Nobody interacts with us on Twitter anyway. It's for the best. <laughs> We're of course on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. Don't send us racist jokes. We, we will not retweet that. <laughs> Max Barber, thanks so much for being back with us, man. Uh, plug whatever you would like here. Yeah, I, I mean, if people want to pick up a copy of Sadie the Goat, it's available on Amazon. Um, uh, you can find out more about my writing at maxbarber.com. And my girlfriend and I have our own podcast called Wild North Creative, which is just about writing and the creative process. Uh, so if you're looking for another podcast, and God knows there's not nearly <laughs> enough of them, 
Uh, Especially from white people. That's one. Wait. Oh, no. what? Ooh. What a twist. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a delight to have you. Uh, Brendan Williams, you're on Twitter also, right? I'm at Brendan Williams with one L on the Twitter. And I'm Matthew Hodges. I'm on Twitter at Matt the Great with a W. We hope everybody has a, a, a thoughtful St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Take care of yourself out there. Like the Irish do. Think about whether your bartender is Irish before you order things. Don't order offensive things. Just take a moment. Just be better, you know? <laughs> we'll learn some goddamn history, people. Kiss a snake! Yeah, there's, there's the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see y'all next week. <laughs> <laughs>